The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Uh, this was in my daily Bible reading this week, and it really uh, struck a chord with me. Really was impressed upon my mind, and, and we pray that the Lord will bless us to glean some blessings from this text. Here in Genesis chapter 15, this is in the middle of the life of Abraham, and uh, we'll try to go back and give you a little bit of that background in a moment. <clears throat> but here he is um, what we will kind of come to know in the uh, New Testament as the justification by faith chapter. Uh, he is questioning God's provision to provide for him a child in the future, a seed to make of him a great nation. He questions that and he said, Lord, you know, you told me a long time ago, years ago, that um, I was going to have a child, but I haven't had a child yet, and my wife has no natural ability to have a child. Um, he questions that. God reaffirms his promise of a great nation and a great seed that Abraham would have. And then in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, it says, He believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And that verse right there is used in the New Testament as the principal example of justification by faith. So here in this justification by faith chapter, so to say, um, Abraham obviously is experiencing some fear. We find here in the first chat in the first verse, because the Lord gives him begins his admonition with fear not. But notice this admonition, this encouragement, is given to Abraham in the midst of a period of doubting, in the midst of a period of struggle, and he reaffirms this promise to him. Genesis chapter 15, <clears throat> and in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. First of all, he tells them to fear not. Now, uh, what happened a few chapters earlier is that they went down into Egypt, and it was during a time of famine. God had already called him out of there of the Chaldees. They spent some time in Haran. He left uh, Haran at age 75, and he promised him when he got into the land of Canaan, this is a land I'm going to give to you and to your seed. Now, the Lord never told him to go down into Egypt, but... He's a man just like us, and when the famine came, he went to the land that had grain to be able to provide for his family. But Egypt is always a picture of sin and the world and Satan. Uh, the Lord never told him to go down there, but he did anyway. But when he went down in there, he, he said, I've got a very beautiful wife. And these Egyptians are going to 
notice that I have a very beautiful wife and they're going to kill me. So therefore, let's lie and say that you're my sister, which, by the way, is kind of a, a half truth. It was half sister. Half truth is a whole lie, by the way. <laughs> half truth is a whole lie. But the reason why he did that, though, the reason why he lied is because he was afraid that he was going to lose his natural life. But what he should have reasoned by faith is that if God told me that I was going to have this great seed and I don't have a child yet, they're not going to kill me. doesn't matter how gorgeous my wife is. <laughs> they're not going to kill me because God has made a promise. But as we often do, we let fear creep in. And by the way, this is a lot larger topic, but uh, when you let fear creep in, we have a tendency to kind of skirt the truth a little bit if, if that's convenient. And that's what he did. He let fear creep in and he skirted the truth. But the reason why fear crept in was because he was doubting the promise of God for him to have a seed. So now you fast forward a little bit. He's just finished uh, this great uh, warfare of conquering the, um, the battle between Sodom and Gomorrah. His, his nephew Lot is taken captive. And he goes and takes his little private military of 300-plus men, and he goes and he defeats them. And then you have the, the very interesting appearance of Melchizedek uh, right at the conclusion of Genesis chapter 14. But obviously, just as there was probably a little bit of fear seeping in when he went into Egypt that caused him to do something that he shouldn't have done, it seems that that fear of God not providing for the promise that he had given to Abraham, that fear was beginning to creep in again, okay? So what's the Lord's admonition to Abram in the midst of this time of fear and trepidation and anxiety? Fear not, Abram, for I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. First of all, the reason why you don't need to be afraid is because I am your protector, I am your shield, uh, as it says all throughout the, the Psalms. I'm your, I'm your refuge. I'm your fortress. I'm your protector. I am your shield. I'm the person that protects you from all the wickedness of this world. But not only is God Abram's shield, not only is God our shield, God is our protector from all of the perils of this world. <clears throat> But God reminds Abram that I am thy exceeding great reward. Now, the identity of God, one of the identities of God that he consistently reveals in Scripture is the I am that I am. He said that to Moses in the burning bush, right? But then you have all these I am statements all throughout the rest of the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the vine and you are the branches. All these I am statements. And here's another one of these I am statements in the Old Testament. I am thy shield. Praise God for that, right? That he's our shield. He's our protector. He's our defender. But he is saying, he's telling Abraham, especially during a time where he's doubting the promise of God, he says, I am thy exceeding great reward. I am your reward. And I think it's vitally important 
that we understand that the ultimate reward that we have in serving the Lord, in the church, in the kingdom, the ultimate reward that we can have in this life are not the rewards and the material blessings that God sees fit to give us in His grace and mercy. The reward is God Himself. Okay? I am thy exceeding great reward. God is our reward. God is our reward. And we can't view God as just a means to getting stuff. What we receive from him is not our reward. He's our reward. <laughs> and uh, it's so common, thankfully it's not an issue with you or among the Primitive Baptist Church, but if you look at the general disposition in Christianity and the, uh, the heresy of the prosperity gospel that essentially just views God as a, as a business transactor, that if I give him to this, then he's going to give me all of these material rewards. If I have enough faith and I give enough money to some wolf in sheep's clothing charlatan, if, if I give God stuff, then he's going to give me stuff. If I give him enough money, then I'm going to get promotions. I'm going to have uh, X amount of money, plenty of retirement, a nice, a nice or a nicer house, uh, a nicer car, all these material things. I view God through the material rewards that I think I can supposedly get from God by giving something to him or serving him. Now, that is an entirely misconstrued view of Jehovah God, right? Why do we serve the Lord? Why do we serve the Lord? Why is the greatest commandment to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind? And why do we obey that greatest commandment to the best of our ability? Why? Because he's God. <laughs> because he's worthy to be praised. Because he loved us before the foundation of the Lord. We love him because he first loved us. We, we love him because he's just, he's our reward. He's our God. We don't love God or serve him in a way that we think we can just extract material blessings from it. And, I, and, I, and it's vitally important that we, that we identify with that that God is our reward. God's our reward because there's going to come times where there are areas in our life that will probably feel unfulfilled. And this is really what he's dealing with here. Let's back up. We'll come back to that. Let's look at the life of Abraham for a little bit. As you can tell, I'm commingling Abram and Abraham. He changed his name in Genesis 17 at circumcision, at this time he's Abram, but we know him better as Abraham, okay? His final name, so to say, after circumcision, even though this is technically before Genesis 17. So I'm sure y'all know I'm talking about the same guy. <clears throat> but the Lord appeared unto him, and we find from the book of Joshua, at this time Abram was worshiping false gods. You know, he wasn't that much better than anybody else. He was in Ur of the Chaldees. He was in an idolatrous nation. And the Lord chose him out 
out of all the rest of the idolaters there in Ur of Chaldees, he chose him out and called him to go into a land that he would show him. And then he left. He went with some of his family. They uh, spent uh, a period of time, we don't know how long, in Haran. And then when they left Haran, he was 75 years old. So a lot of times we say he was 75 years old when he left Ur of the Chaldees, but actually he was 75 years old when he left Haran. So my presumption would be that was probably a few years before then. Um, we don't know the exact timeline on a few of these things. But when he arrives in, in the land of Canaan, God promised him a land. He tells him later that as far as you can see, as far as you can see in every direction, this land is going to be yours. Now, an amazing act of the Lord's uh, overruling providence and bringing beauty for ashes despite our mistakes. We already mentioned Abram going down into, uh, into Egypt. And um, he made a, a, the easy decision, uh, possibly a selfish decision, to go down into Egypt in the land of famine. What, what you would have hoped that he may have said is said, you know, the Lord said he's going to give me this land. He's able to uh, make a table in the wilderness. He's going to provide for us even if it's in a time of famine. But he's just like us, and he said, you know what, I probably need to go down into Egypt, go down into the world, go, go down uh, and go where it's, it's more convenient. And then we've already told you that when he showed up, he lied. He lied about it. But when he showed up in the land of Canaan, he was a nomad. He didn't have anything. And obviously the Lord does not approve of sin. He's not the author of sin, and he absolutely did not approve of Abraham lying and, and even probably him going down into Egypt. But don't ever forget, God is always in the business. God is always in the business of exalting and blessing and defending his children and spoiling the wicked. <laughs> so even in Abram's mistakes, do you want to know how he left Egypt? He showed up a nomad that, that went down into, into Egypt with nothing. And what did he come out with? Through the circumstances of him doing some things he shouldn't have done, right? He was not truthful. But Pharaoh, or the, the leader of Egypt, I don't know if he's addressed as Pharaoh here, um, he gives Abraham all of these, all this gold, all this riches, all this livestock, all these servants, because he was so enamored with how gorgeous Sarah was. <laughs> So he leaves Egypt a rich man. <laughs> the Lord is, is always in the business of bringing beauty for ashes, right? Of overruling our mistakes. God didn't cause him to make those mistakes, but even if he made those mistakes, the Lord is always going to be defending his people against the wickedness of this world that's portrayed there by Egypt. So even though Abram made mistakes down in Egypt, he spoiled the wicked. He spoiled uh, each, and he left there a rich man. Okay, he left there a rich man so much so that he um, has his own little private army, three hundred plus men, uh, in Genesis chapter fourteen. And he goes and he has this great defeat of these kings, and then uh, he's he's blessed by Melchizedek. So at this time right here, he's been promised a great land. He's, at this point, a very rich man. And I think the Lord is really trying to emphasize for him right here 
the reward that you have is not the land that I gave to you. The reward that you have are not the riches that I gave to you. And the reward that you have is not the child that you will ultimately, at some point, years down the road have. The reward is not the material blessings that in my grace and providence I've given to you. The reward is the I am. The reward is me, God's telling him. And especially since he has been promised something, especially thinking about a child, none of us are promised a child. None of us are promised a child. But Abraham was. Okay, we have to pray in many instances of life. Um, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You know, we don't, we don't know if the Lord may open in certain areas, in marriage and parenthood and jobs in uh, church situation. We don't, the Lord has not definitively given us a promise that any of those things are going to happen. We just say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what we have to pray. But in this exact instance, the Lord had told him he's going to have a child. Okay? We don't have that promise, but he did. You're going to have a child. But, as any of us would, again, we don't have exact benchmarks, uh, but he makes the mistake with Hagar in the next chapter, and he's 86 when that happened. He's 75 when he left Haran. Uh, this is just my assumption, so take it for just that. We'll give him two years from leaving her the Chaldees before he left Haran. I don't, I don't think it was a couple months. There was enough time for his family members to die there, so I'll give him two years as a buffer. So let's say he was 73. Let's say he was 73, and let's say this happened the year before Hagar. At that point, he's been waiting, you know, 13, 14 years. That's a long time. I was thinking about that. Man, if I had to wait on anything for 13 years, you give me about a month, and I'm getting a little impatient, right? But 13 years, I can understand why he's like, Lord, you remember back when you told me that I was going to have a child? And do I need to just go ahead and, and put all my eggs in the in the basket of my servant Eliezer? <laughs> because, by the way, Lord, I don't know if you remember, but my wife uh, is still well past the natural ability to have children. You know, it's not just that she's young and, and healthy and she's just not having kids. She's way past that time of life. There's no biological ability for her to have children. I love the language it uses in Romans chapter four, it says that Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. It didn't make anything, it didn't make any sense to him. I, I, yesterday, I was recording some messages on the will of God, for trying to wrap up that series on the on the radio, and uh, we were talking from uh, Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to your own understanding. You want to know what Abraham's understanding sa said? He said, "There's no hope." Right? But you'll know what God, what Abraham did in spite of his own understanding, saying that there's no biological ability for Sarah to have a child. Against hope, he believed in hope, right? It didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense. But guess what? God's promises overrule our, our own understanding. It overrule, they overrule our own logic. But it would be very easy, especially when you've been promised a child, you know, we haven't been promised a child. You haven't been promised whatever benchmark you think that you 
desire or might reach marriage, professional accomplishments, um, whatever it is for you. It would be very easy for him at this time of life, despite he's been given this amazing land, despite he's now an extremely rich man, he has prominence, he has no doubt people feared and respected him after this great battle that he won. He's telling them, he's telling Abraham, your ultimate reward and fulfillment is not in this child that's going to come 14 plus years later. Your ultimate reward is not in this kid. Your reward's in me. It's in me. And that's important because I know none of us look at that, look at God and, and view him as just a, a means to an end, right? Uh, we, we don't view him that way. But we can fall into the trap of saying, Lord, if you don't give me this, whatever that is for you, if you don't give me this, then how can I ever have joy? How can I ever be happy? How can I ever feel fulfilled? And what the Lord's telling Abraham here is it's not about me. I'm going to send my kid at the appointed time, at the set time. And it just so happens that set time is about 14 years from now, 14 plus years from now. It's not coming tomorrow. So you don't walk around moping around for 14 years because that time has not come yet. Because your reward, your fulfillment is not in me giving you the blessing of eventually having a child, that's not your reward. He's saying, look at me, I'm your reward. I'm your reward. And that's important that we identify ourselves that way. Because it's so easy for us to let discontentment breed in and say, because I'm not where I want to be or where I think I should be. And who knows, maybe you may end up that way. <laughs> you know, uh, the God's, God's providence, God's timing is always perfect. And I've I've seen that exhibited so much in my life. You know, there was a time where the Lord, he knows me. He knows I can't multitask at life. That's what I usually say. So he let me focus on one thing at a time. <laughs> Let's get our schooling taken care of. Let's get you uh, some credentials that can get you some jobs in the future. And then once that was taken care of, now it was all about the ministry. And he called me to preach, and I had my, my deck pretty much cleared, and I was able to focus and study and lay a foundation for the ministry. And then once that got settled a little bit, then the Lord brought Bethany. <laughs> and I was being blessed to be married. And then he gave us a little bit in his, uh, in his graciousness, really. I mean, it was a difficult process for us having to wait a little bit for Zachary to be born. But you know what? I, I know definitively, especially in our specific circumstance, everybody's different, but it would not have been the greatest blessing it may not be good work. It might not have been the best for us to have a honeymoon baby. Because we, we needed to establish our relationship. And the Lord gave us some time to do that. And now we have the blessing of our son. But you know what? The Lord knows your specific circumstance. And it'd be very easy in each of those segments to be very discontented just because I'm not where I will end, ultimately end up at. <laughs> Get right? Now, there's no guarantee that that's where I was going to end up at, but we just, you know, we just trust God in regard to all that. You know, if it, if it wasn't the Lord's will for me to 
be married, I always kind of bargained with him and said, I'd make me a lot better preacher, I feel like, uh, if I was married. And I've kind of bargained with him in the same way of being a father. I feel like it'll make me a lot better preacher if you bless us with a child for me to have that context in a personal sense. But you know what? Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was the Lord's will for me to be a eunuch for the kingdom's sake. And you know what? There's a lot of blessings uh, and the way that you can invest, because I, I was able to do that for a period of time, invest myself in solely in the kingdom and be a unit for the kingdom's sake, that when your family comes along, you have other responsibilities that limit you in a way that the Apostle Paul didn't, right? Apostle Paul would not have been able to do what he did if he had family responsibilities back at home. But... Whatever the Lord calls you to in that regard, whether it be a kingdom, a unit for the kingdom's sake, or maybe be married in the future, have kids in the future, get a better job, and whatever that thing is, you know what? That may be where you end up a year from now, two years from now, 14 years from now. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. But we need to understand as we wait patiently, hopefully, on the Lord's will, that what we end up receiving, those blessings that we might possibly end up receiving in the future those are not our reward God he's not just our reward by the way he is our exceeding great reward I like in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 where it says God's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we have those are three superlatives that just keep stacking on top of one another and here you have two superlatives that just keep stacking on top of it. He is our exceeding great reward. And he had to stop at two superlatives because uh, it, w- it would be very difficult for us to read to put all of the thousands and millions of superlatives that would go before uh, how, just how great our reward is in Jesus Christ. But it's very important that we understand, though, that God is our reward. God's our reward. It's not what we get from him. And I have to remind myself of that a lot, especially in the ministry. You know, um, I know I'm an unprofitable servant, but sometimes I feel a lot more unprofitable than others. <laughs> and I have to remind myself, uh, be purposeful too, because my mind easily gravitates to focusing on things I really shouldn't focus on. But you know what? My reward in the ministry is not baptisms. It's not uh, some men bless their heart and maybe the Lord will give them repentance and conviction. Um, my, my reward in the kingdom is not building regional or national influence to be able to meddle in other people's business and, and control the act. That, that's not my reward. You want to know what the reward is in the ministry? Jesus Christ is the reward. He's the exceeding great reward. And it's hard to explain unless you've been called and you've experienced this. But you know what? There's just something different. When the Holy Spirit is blessing you to preach and power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, and it is such a blessing to feel the Spirit on the pew listening. But it just feels different. And it's just between, between me and the Lord. It's between the minister and the Lord, you know. Uh, it's not between you and the Lord. It's between me and Him. But there's, there's a special fellowship and connection when you feel that the Spirit and Jesus Christ has used you in His service to speak to His people to minister to their soul. 
And you want to know what the reward is in the ministry? That's the reward. <laughs> That's the reward. And you want to know what that reward is? It's the fellowship and the presence and the feeling of Jesus Christ. That's the reward. The reward is not empire building. The reward is not baptisms. You know, I don't hear many people uh, do this now, but it seems like all the ministers um, 50 years ago, they all kept a little tally book of all of the baptisms and all the weddings and all the funerals that they did. And then in the obituary, they listed it off. <laughs> this person died and he did this many baptisms and he, he did this many weddings and he did this many. Well, I don't have many tally marks in any of those categories. The, the reward in the ministry are not supposedly numerical benchmarks. What's the reward in the ministry? It's Jesus Christ. He is our exceeding great reward. And the reason why it's so important to have that foundation is because what are you going to do when those material rewards maybe cease? Or maybe they're a little lighter than you assume or that you think that you should have. You know, think about Job. Think about Job. What was his response when the Lord took away every bit of material blessings that he had his prominence, his respect in the community, um, ten of his children. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, chapter two takes away his, you know, some people say casually, well, at least you have your health. Maybe, maybe somebody told him that at the end of chapter one. Well, that evaporated in chapter two. And his wife turned on him and said, curse God and die. <laughs> You know, and what was Job's response to all that? Did he say, Lord, I can't believe that you're, that you're being so mean to me. You know what he said? Naked came out of my mother's womb. Naked I'm going to return hither. The Lord gave, praise God, for his blessing of giving. But you know what? He, he saw fit to remove the hedge of providence and take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because he understood that my reward was not in these blessings that he gave me. Which, by the way, he gave it to him. He took it away. And praise God for the 42nd chapter in Job that the Lord gave him double because of his faithfulness in the midst of that trial in the end. But he looked at that and he said, this stuff that God gave me, that's not my reward. God is my reward and God's still faithful. And he said in the middle of that, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Why? Because he's my reward. <laughs> Not stuff I get from him. He's my reward. God is our reward. And if he's our reward and we view him that way, then if we're in the right mindset, and I, and I say that, I rarely am. <laughs> Maybe you struggle too. But it's hard to take those, you know, I, I have no idea how I would have responded if I was, in Job's shoes. I, I hope I would have been full of the Holy Ghost and said the same thing he said, but I know me too well. I'd probably, if, I'm, if I got around to saying that, I'd probably mope around for a while before I did. <laughs> I'd probably be talking, you know, it's one thing for the miserable, miserable comforters to come in and tell you those things. I probably would have been saying the same things the miserable comforters were saying because uh, it's very easy to get discouraged in the midst of the heat of those kind of trials, right? But, he was able to be reminded that God is my exceeding great reward. And you know what? I praise God for those material blessings I had. Praise God for my dear children that I had. But you know what? I have not lost. 
I have not lost my reward. <laughs> you see that? He, he said, I haven't lost what my true identity is, what my true joy, what my true completeness. It says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, we are complete in Him. You know, you're not complete in meeting some future benchmark uh, or, or life event. That's not your completeness. Your reward and your completeness is in God. It's in Christ. And guess what? God put you in Christ before the world began. And there's no way to get you out of Christ. So therefore, the source of your reward will never, never end. And it will never be diminished at all. Now, our, our enjoyment of that could be diminished from time to time if we're not mindful and uh, purposeful to be thinking about that. But God ultimately is our reward, not the providential material blessings that he and his kindness and graciousness sees fit to give us. <clears throat> Let's go to uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Let's jump in here in verse 3. <clears throat> Bear with me for not giving you the full context here. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What's, what's the definition? Here it says life eternal. Um, you know, I, I think that certainly eternal life in heaven is primarily characterized by the fullness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ as our exceeding great reward. That's what identifies heaven as heaven. You know, it's not that it's no pain. It's not that it's no death. Those are residual effects because you're in the presence of God. But what makes heaven heaven is not because I don't hurt anymore. What makes heaven heaven is the presence and the knowledge of God. Okay? What's your reward in heaven? Your reward in heaven is not extra crowns or bigger crowns or um, a bigger house or some of those other things that people try to extrapolate on heaven. What's your reward in heaven? Everybody's got the same reward in heaven. It's God. It's Jesus Christ. And at that point, you will have full, unfiltered, perfect knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that, that is the definition of eternal life. But here, I think, I think the Holy Spirit shifts the words a little bit to make us think not, not about heaven, but to think about the kingdom of heaven. And he says here, this is life eternal. It's life eternal. And if we are going to experience, the, if we're going to lay hold on eternal life, first of all, we've got to understand what eternal life is. What is eternal life? It is the unending, perfect fullness of the presence and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and Jehovah God. That's what heaven is. Now, I, I'm thankful that we have a hope that we will see loved ones in heaven. But listen, your reward in going to heaven is not to see a loved one, okay? Your, your reward in going to heaven is not to get 
uh, you supposedly are working more here in time to get some other reward that somebody else is not going to get in heaven. It's not a loved one. It's not a higher place of prominence in heaven. You don't know what your exceeding great reward in heaven is? It's the same exceeding great reward you had here on earth, which is God, which is Jesus Christ, okay? That is your reward in heaven. And I think when we, when we frame it that way, it's very easy to understand. We're all joint heirs with Jesus Christ. There's not somebody that's going to have a, a, a greater fellowship or fullness of Jesus Christ in heaven that's going to get them a better reward in heaven. No, we're all joint heirs with Jesus Christ. At that time, we're all going to have the fullness of our reward. But there is a great degree of variation in the way in which we experience that reward here in time, in life eternal, if you let me put it that way. And what is it identified by? What's it identified by? You know, you look at some people, and I fall in this trap too. You look at them and you say, man, the Lord's really blessing them. Because you look at external benchmarks. Oh, they've got a good job, or they've been married, or they have the kid, or they have, you know, a nice house, and they have a nice whatever, whatever. You, you, you look from an external vantage point, and you say, look at all those things that the Lord has given them. You want to know what a true reward is here in our life of discipleship to where we can lay hold on life eternal? It's a greater knowledge of our exceeding great reward, Jesus Christ. Amen. And you know what? That's not quantifiable by external blessings, right? Because you know what? Some of, uh, some of the dearest people this side of heaven, they're not going to have the great promotion. They're not going to have the nice house. They're, they're going to struggle, and they've got to mean their prayers every morning when you say, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. They've got to mean it and believe it. But you know what? If they're walking hand in hand with Jesus Christ and their knowledge of Jesus Christ is, is growing every day, they have a much greater reward than anybody that has material blessings that's too invested in the rat race of the world, right? Life eternal is knowing God better because he's our reward. He's our reward, not stuff, not life benchmarks, not material blessings. He is our reward. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And the Apostle Paul is describing the things he used to put confidence in. And these are the things that he used to view as his reward, right? These are the things he used to put value in. But then the, when, the, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's what he said in, in Romans chapter 7. My, my priorities changed and all these things I used to put confidence in, they didn't mean anything to me anymore. And I realized those weren't my rewards at all. <laughs> you want to know what my reward was? It was this man on the road to Damascus that spoke to me and said, Saul, Saul, why persecute thou me? He's my reward. And all of that came to a head when all of a sudden God changed his heart and he changed his soul. And he realized he used to think he was righteous, but he was unrighteous because he was unborn again. But now all of a sudden he views, sees how unrighteous he is. And his only hope of righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But all the, these are all the things he used to view as, as his reward. Verse 7, Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, I count loss for Christ. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. That's where true happiness is. It's not in stuff. 
It's not in life benchmarks. It's in Jesus Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss. What did you give all this up for? <laughs> I mean, you gave up financial prosperity. You gave, you gave up power. You gave up influence. What did you give up, up all these things? What do, you, what do you got to show for it? You spend most of your life in prison. You don't have, you know, you can make some tents from time to time, but that's really just to provide your bare necessities. You don't have any retirement. And then, you, then ultimately, fast forward a few years, you die a martyr's death in Rome with probably not two, two cents to your name. People would look at the Apostle Paul. What'd you give all that up for? You, you don't have any material blessings. What'd you give all that up for? For the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. You want to know what he said? He said, that's life eternal. I'm laying hold on eternal life. And the fullness of eternal life is not just not having my back hurt anymore. The fullness of eternal life is not having to experience the pain of a loss of a love. That's not eternal life. Those are, those are good things. But eternal life is God. He is our exceeding great reward. And it's just, you know, I think of the people that he, that, that would read this, that they viewed, you know, all this pedigree that he listed off. There were few men that he interacted with that they still viewed that as their, as, he, as their reward. And I could just envision them reading this, and he said, okay, what'd you give all that up for? The knowledge of a carpenter from Nazareth? What? <laughs> but what he, was, what he was saying is that this is of more value. That reward that I receive is of greater value than any money or property or positions of influence that I used to have, this is of greater value than any of that. And you know what it is? Knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowledge of our exceeding great reward. And he says, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but done that I may win Christ. Those things don't mean anything. Those material blessings, you know, the Lord, Lord gave, the Lord took away. <laughs> but I can win Christ as I'm growing in knowledge and fellowship with Him. And then to be found in Him, verse 9. Now, you're, you are, as a child of God, you are in Christ before the foundation of the world, and you will be in Christ for eternity future. But are you walking in Christ on a daily basis, growing in that knowledge and laying hold on the exceeding great reward that we have in Jesus Christ on a daily basis? You see, this is about discipleship. It doesn't have anything to do with sonship or us being in heaven at the end of time. But is our knowledge of Jesus Christ growing right here, right now? That I may know him, verse 10 and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. My desire is to know him greater, to know him better. And I want to, I want to get, um, before we conclude, I want to get Acts chapter 17. There was some language here that I thought was very good language for us to, 
try to consider. Here in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching on Mars Hill in Athens. And again, we're just going to jump into the middle of this sermon right here, so y'all bear with me. Verse 26, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. And if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. You know, that gives the language that your exceeding great reward is, is sitting right in front of you. Do you want to know what makes the difference? You being purposeful to feel after him and to find him, <laughs> to pursue it, to seek it. And if you, if you reach out and desire to lay hold on it, God's going to give you that every time, you see? It's within, it's within your reach. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? We're told to lay hold on eternal life. There's a sense here in discipleship that eternal life is within our reach. It's within our, we can lay hold on it. We just have to feel after him. And if you do that, you'll find him. You'll find him every time. You know, um, obviously Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, are perfectly one with the Holy Spirit. And he says in, uh, I think it's Luke chapter 11, that if you pray for the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's saying there is if you pray for me, <laughs> I'm going to give you me. <laughs> I'm going to give you a greater fullness of me. I'm going to give you a greater knowledge of me. And if you do that, it's going to bless you immeasurably on that day to be able to withstand when material blessings are maybe few and far between. We have to identify ourselves. Identify ourselves as our true exceeding great reward is in Jesus Christ. It's not in stuff. It's not in meeting life benchmarks. And it's also not in meeting life benchmarks by the supposed metric of when other people are meeting those benchmarks or when you think that you're supposed to by a certain age or by a certain time or by a certain season in life, whatever, whatever. Your reward is not in meeting those benchmarks or meeting them in the supposed right window when everybody else is meeting it. No. Your reward is Jesus Christ. It's God. God is your, not just your reward, your exceeding great reward. And the fullness of heaven, the fullness of heaven is not that we will be walking on things that, at least in my mind, are figuratively described as streets of gold. You know, the gold is a mineral here in time, and um, I, I don't know why there would be any need for a natural element or a natural mineral in the perfection of heaven. What he's saying there is the very, the most pure thing that you can think about here on earth, that's just what's under our feet in heaven. But you look at the, the figurative majesty that's described of heaven. What makes heaven heaven? Jesus Christ, God. Because he 
is our exceeding great reward. We'd like to sing to close, Christ is the treasure I desire. 469. 469. Jesus is all I wish or want. For him I pray, I thirst, I pant. That others after earth aspire. Christ is the treasure that I desire. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.